Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Fight Night. I'm Jeff Keating. My initial attraction to this story centered around Ali's return to the ring and the heist, especially since both of these events happened in my hometown. I was young and relatively naive, especially in matters of race, culture, and systematic injustice. So when I first interviewed J.D. Hudson in 2002, I never imagined I would be getting an education into the two Americas, a term often used to denote the different experiences between white communities and black and brown communities, and also into the worlds of the police and the people of color they were assigned to govern. I didn't expect to discover so much more about Atlanta, the city I was born and raised, and also come to learn that this world of hustlers and policemen, where Chicken Man and JD were born, was just miles away from where I grew up. I was in my early 30s when I began pursuing this story, and I was ignorant and misinformed about several topics in our collective American history. But for some reason, these two incredible men trusted me to tell their stories, and I'm honored by this opportunity. I was also fortunate to have other voices as guides, including our historian, Dr. Maurice Hobson. In this final episode of Reflection, Dr. Hobson and I explore some of these topics and issues in more depth, and try to wrap our minds around the nuance and complexities of these characters and events. We began with the topic of how the black communities are seen and viewed by white communities. The expansion on that conversation really has more to do with what white America cannot see in black America. It's not visible via the, the naked eye. You know, by and large within black communities, 
the idea of who black people were has always been extremely much more complicated within the black community than what white America can see. And so in this regard, what Hudson was referring to is he was discussing how he was far more superior, far more intelligent than the white police officers that were his superior. But, you know, he had to kind of present himself as not being as such because that was a way of survival. Historically, this is known as a slave wit. But what this also does when white men began to work for him, they didn't want to leave him because, you know, he was cool. He was fair. He was smart. And they understood that. But the way in which this works in the larger context, oftentimes in European cultures, the idea of success is based on, you know, income or it's based on profession, you know, the kind of job that you have. That's not necessarily the case in the black community. The black community operates under a different set of cultural practices. And so one of the things that should be articulated is the fact that these hustlers, uh, these gangsters were probably some of the most intelligent people that you would meet, but it did not register or it was not presented in a way to where white America could understand it. Within Eurocentric culture, you know, if you're smart, you're supposed to do well in school and be valedictorian and go on to college and be rich and famous and successful. Well, the truth of the matter is that black Americans were not afforded those opportunities. And this goes back to W.E.B. Du Bois's double consciousness, where black America always has to see itself through the eyes of others. And so there's a folk culture that black people understand, which does fully understand the informal economic opportunities that are presented by these quote unquote hustlers versus, you know, the kind of New England pious kind of thrift and self-help and denying yourself gratification. And so Hudson's reference to that really does articulate the way in which he's functioning in, in two worlds. He understands the criminal element of this world in a very clear and precise way. And he also understands the world of, you know, being a professional as a police officer in Atlanta. One of the things that I found fascinating as I was going back and listening to episode one was the way that this cyclically came back when he first was sworn in by Herbert E. Jenkins, the chief of police, or, or at least his boss, as the end police, and then later went on to explain to the audience that Herbert E. Jenkins became one of the most liberal police chiefs in the country. So talk about that kind of – here's the word that blew me away, Maurice, is he said that Herbert E. Jenkins evolved. That means you change your character and heart. I mean, that's that's a that's a strong word. So talk about – I mean, is it not or do you disagree with that? I agree, but, you know, I'm listening to this and, and, and for a living, I study people. Maybe it wasn't that Herbert Jenkins evolved. Maybe he was playing politics in the front end. And the political climate in Atlanta changed, particularly in the middle of the 1950s when Mayor Bill Hartsville decided to coin and market Atlanta as the city too busy to hate. I want you to think about it this way. In the 1950s, I mean, Montgomery is absolutely rebelling. There's unrest. Jackson, Mississippi, there's unrest. Little Rock, Arkansas, Nashville, Tennessee, Greensboro, North Carolina. And so what Atlanta understands is if it presents itself as being a moderate city, that it could actually be the poster child for race relations in the American South. Atlanta in 1961 is the first Southern city to integrate in terms of public schools, in terms of transportation and different aspects of life. And Jenkins is on record as saying that Klansmen from, you know, Florida or Alabama or Tennessee, Mississippi, you know, the Carolinas, that they would be put in jail. They would get their heads cracked if they came to Atlanta trying to start problems. 
You also have during this time is Ralph McGill, who is the editor for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who has taken a seriously hardline stance on really presenting Atlanta as a city that has moderate race relations. And so I think that Herbert Jenkins, that he fits into this new refashioning and rebranding of Atlanta. And I think he then becomes a leader or pioneer in terms of how race relations can go. I mean, there, there are a lot of major political figures in the history of the United States that have done that. I mean, one that comes to mind is Lyndon Baines Johnson. He ran as a segregationist. He's out of Texas, but he does more in terms of civil and human rights legislation than any other American president. And any movement towards the advancement of democracy is centered around someone like President Lyndon B. Johnson. And we can see that same kind of experience with Herb Jenkins. What I'm saying is, He may have evolved, but what he may have evolved from is not having to play politics as much as being a human being. That's fair to say. Again, the interconnection between Herbert E. Jenkins and J.D. from early on, specifically as it relates to our story, I guess that's a better way to put it. You know, this guy that's sworn in with this racial slur, Mm -hmm. J.D. even says, at the time, I didn't even think about it. I had to reflect back on it. That's kind of unusual in, in that statement itself. And then as you see, as the story progresses, however we would define it, you know, evolution or playing politics or whatever, but ultimately Herbert E. Jenkins assigns JD, this same cop that he's sworn in, to lead this case. So obviously they got either some kind of bond or trust or respect or whatever it is to put him in such a case with such a high spotlight. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say it. And, you know, across the American South, I mean, particularly, you know, we we think about race relations in the American South and we see it as a sordid relationship between blacks and whites. But people are complicated and one on one. They do different things. It may be, you know, safe to say that Hudson and Herbert Jenkins really did just have a bond and there was a trust. And also, you know, think of it this way. What really may be happening here is that J.D. Hudson, as a police officer who had to arrest the young people of the Atlanta student movement, you know, at Lebs Diner, but he had to do so with dignity and pride. And it may be that Chief Jenkins understood that JD was the kind of person that could keep the black community off his back. And see, there may have been appreciation for that. It was one of those things to where because J.D. Hudson had an organic relationship with all of the black communities in Atlanta and Herbert Jenkins understood that the black community respected J.D. Hudson. That's probably why J.D. was able to, you know, become Ali's bodyguard and to be with him 24-7, you know, during the time when Ali is here for his fight. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I've had some reservations about some of the phrases and topics that we're discussing. So let's take one of those so we can expand on it a little bit, which is black on black crime. Just talk a little bit about the history of that phrase. Black on black crime is a pathologizing kind of term, oftentimes, that came into the American English lexicon with other words such as inner city, which means black or welfare queen. They're these scripted narratives. And the thing about it is, I want you all to think about this. Only 13% of the United States is identifies as of African descent. And the fact that someone would throw out black on black crime, it negates all of the horror and terror and the violence that America has put on all of its citizens, but black, brown, native, women, poor people. So to throw that out there, it really shifts the blame from what the real culprit is. And so when we talk about black on black and what that means, oftentimes, you know, black on black is presented to kind of take the focus off of what America has done in terms of violence towards other communities. And it just focuses on a particular group to show that black people are their own worst enemies. 
And it doesn't take into account American greed. It doesn't take into account segregation. It doesn't take into account sexual assault and trafficking and and all of those different things. It doesn't really take into account American history. Exactly. All right, let's segue to Muhammad Ali. Mom was telling me that Muhammad Ali had a real love affair with Atlanta over the years. Well, as a result of Ali being able to fight here, he endears that relationship with Atlanta. And there are at least four things that Ali does with Atlanta over his career because they become partners. So Muhammad Ali and Atlanta, Georgia, create this love affair. And what I call it is a love story in the key of the Black New South. The Black New South deals with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which politically changed the American South, where black people are able to really assert themselves politically. And so what Ali does is in the late 1970s, he comes back to Atlanta to help raise money for the Dr. Martin Luther King Center. He comes back to Atlanta, King's hometown, and celebrates Dr. King and his nonviolent direct action by helping to raise money. He has a a fight in effigy with Maynard Jackson to help raise money for this cause. Also, during the notorious episodes known as the Atlanta child murders, it is Ali who gives money from his own winnings to the city of Atlanta. He gives $400,000 in cash because the city of Atlanta could only muster $100,000 for an award. So he gives that to the city of Atlanta because he says it's shameful what's happening to those children. And then, of course, in the 1980s, he does come back to Atlanta to, again, help raise more money for the King Center. But it's in 1996 when he lights the torch for the Centennial Olympiad that we really see that deal sealed in in their relationship. The relationship between Muhammad Ali and Atlanta, Georgia, is one that deserves considerable research and attention. Ali understood that Atlanta giving him the opportunity to come back and fight set a stage for him to do what he loved to do most. And that was, you know, be a champion of humanity. Atlanta understanding the brawn, the brain, the brilliance of Ali as not only a heavyweight fighter, but as a champion for civil and human rights attached itself. And the, both the city and Ali merged themselves and, and presented the kind of image of what it meant to be rising in the Black New South. What are some similarities and some tie-ins about this story, that event you just discussed, that heist from 1970, and what we're dealing with now in 2020? Some of the similarities between the Ali fight 1970, the all-Black everything heist that takes place after the fight, and what we have going now is also a conversation around equal protection and due process under the law. Let me connect this in a particular kind of way. You know, Muhammad Ali was buked and scorned because he was deemed as unpatriotic because he did not want to adhere to policies that would have sent him to the front lines to be murdered on behalf of a country that didn't love him. And it goes back to that conversation. I mean, with with Ali being a prize fighter, I'm pretty sure that white America would have loved to have seen him just shut up in box. And, you know, right now we are in the midst of a pandemic where the American president and even the governor in the state of Georgia has failed to try to protect people from this pandemic. Things such as personal protective equipment, PPEs that has seriously impacted folk with pre-existing conditions who are overwhelmingly black and brown, who, who don't have access to adequate health care. They live in food deserts. We see the rise of the prison industrial complex and and how that works. 
But what we also begin to see here is right now with professional sports, you see athletes that are taking a page out of Muhammad Ali's book and they're standing up. Of course, Colin Kaepernick is going to get his due for taking a knee in regards to the playing of the national anthem to bring you know attention to police brutality. You got the NBA players who, with the Kenosha, Wisconsin police shooting Jacob Blake in the back seven times, who basically say, you know what? This is an injustice. And they said, we're not going to play tonight. You have LeBron James and the rest of the NBA players who meet with President Barack Obama, who's able to really fully discuss how they can wield their power as athletes to be able to make this world more democratic. So, I mean, we see how Atlanta, Georgia is going to make State Farm Arena become a place for voting. What we're seeing here is that Ali was the kind of world persona. He showed us how it should be done. But then on the flip side of it is in each and every world, in each and every time, there's always an informal economy. And there are those within all communities, but the black community in particular, that feel as if America has never done right by black populations. And thus they operate on their own terms. And in operating on their own terms is why you would have a fireball or why you would have a you know, Richard Wheeler. Yeah, short papa. I love the story of Ola May and her daughters dressing up, going to the malls and stealing everything. And yes. then obviously using it to what but there are white politicians and white people in corporate worlds that are stealing money and breaking the law all over the place. And of course, they it's not looked at in the same regard, or they have the finances to hire people to protect them legally, or they have the connections politically to protect them from certain things. But it's all criminals. Discuss that a little bit in 1970 and that hypocrisy yeah, in well, some ways. Well, sure. I mean, the, the the founding of this country is based on that same kind of greed. I mean, you know, there were people, Native Americans that were that had been on this land for thousands of years. And when Europeans come, they decide that, you know, they are God's chosen people and they are going to go from sea to shining sea. It's called Manifest Destiny. And so when this new nation was created, the laws were created to keep a particular group of people in power. Uh, the top 5% in power. And as a result of that, when you create the laws, you also create the loopholes. When we talk about this gangster, all of this gangster stuff, what we're really talking about is capitalism and greed. I mean, that's what America was based on. We're talking about a group of hustlers who have figured out how to manipulate the system based on how they can versus bankers and Wall Street, who's able to manipulate the system of money how they can, and then they can get just slapped on the wrist. Oh, I didn't know that that happened. You're talking about the haves and have-nots historically, and how the have-nots have always had to be much more creative, whereas the haves, they function in terms of money. One of the things that I argue and how I teach history is that racism, sexism, classism equals prejudice plus the use and the abuse of power. Everyone has prejudice. And when I say prejudice, I mean, you may not like red meat. That's that's your own prejudice. I mean, for whatever reason, you may not like red meat or you may not like the New Orleans Saints because you just don't like them. But the real issue is the use and the abuse of power. And what that means is if I am a New Orleans Saints fan and you are one of my students, Jeff, and I give you an F in my class because I have the power to use it and abuse it, to give you an F because I'm holding my prejudice against you, then that creates a problem. And when we talk about the use and the abuse of power, what we're saying is we're talking about the creation of policies and policies dictate laws. And so the laws of this nation 
have failed to protect the least amongst us, the black America, brown America, women, poor whites, the First Nations and native groups, LGBTQI, the laws have failed to protect them because at the end of the day, this nation was based on white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male ideas. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was just raised with an interest 
in other cultures, whatever it may be. I mean, I'm talking, I mean, you could be going from Russia to Asia, Africa, whatever. And so I find it interesting that there's a lot of people that just aren't interested in other cultures. They're so, you know what I mean? They're yeah. so locked into their own. That's what fascinated me with this world. I was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And the fact that it was in Atlanta, Maurice, under my nose in a city that I grew up in all these years and a true crime and, and literally miles away. I mean, you know, I'm in Decatur, Georgia. You know, a lot of this is happening on the west side or the southwest mm-hmm. side. So Anyway, I just I'm constantly reflecting on that, and it's just I'm I'm just like, and it was different too, Maurice, because a lot of people get obsessed with stories. I wasn't obsessed with this. I would move on and move away, but the story always seemed to come back and grab me and find me and say, "No, you need to tell me." So I'm ecstatic. We get a chance to tell this story. We don't know how time works. We don't know how it will move forward, and. Right now, right here, you're doing this work and it is going to be recorded and it is going to be released. And the cool thing about it is you have a different network that because it's you, because black folk are interested in black history in Atlanta, it's also going to teach them something. So, you know, uh, when someone Googles my name, what they know is they know I do African-American history. They know I do political history, the American South. They know I do Atlanta. They know it's black. They, they know that about me. So for certain demographics, no matter what I do, they're like, I don't want to hear what he has to say because he's going to come with that leftist extremist kind of stuff, whatever, whether it's that or not, doesn't really matter. But with you, your own communities are going to support you. And that's a vast community right there. So sometimes it takes a, a Jewish kid from Decatur, Georgia, whose mother and father met at the Hyatt and whose dad is picking up his sister and nieces woman. I mean, like, Hey, you were born for this. I mean, the meeting of your parents and what all this stuff does and it comes back to you, you're chosen for this. And I look forward to, you know, helping you promote this kind of story. But uh, you're the right. Clearly, you're the right person for the job because we're right here talking about it. I'm saying that to say that I'm not promoting time or chance, but I do believe that there's something bigger working. You know, when you do these types of pieces, documentaries, these limited podcasts, you have this material, you're trying to find this story. And what we realized is it really is about this friendship that developed between this white Jewish Southern kid from Decatur and this black hustler turned preacher from Atlanta. And just over time, I mean, I go in, you know, to track down this story, Maurice, and to tell it because I'm so excited because I love true crime so much. But ultimately, I'm having dinner with Gordon Williams and his family. I'm meeting his children. We're going to film premieres together. He's meeting my family. He's meeting my wife and kids. So, I mean, it it really develops into this friendship. What starts as research and an education just turns into something so much more. Listen, man, it is always a beautiful thing. You you know, the old A-Team show, Hannibal used to say, I just love when a plan comes together. But what you are exemplifying and what you embody is what we call research to praxis. It's not just about the story. You have thoroughly immersed yourself to truly understand this. And basically, you have this story in your mind. You're connecting with all of those to make sure that the story is told correctly. And now you're able to take 
what's in your mind and present it to the rest of the world so they can see the story there. And also it's it's the background and history and the situation they're in. I mean, you say, oh, these people are criminal, but you got to look at the 400 years that fall behind them and you got to look at the education that's afforded them and key ingredient in all humanity, which is survival. Some people are just trying to survive for their yeah. families. I mean, and so you really got, and then what, what we ultimately must do is we have to look at each person, not by the face, not their skin. That's right. But there's a name and there's a story That's to everybody. Right. This is Gordon right. Williams That's Sr. Right. This is his story. And yeah. there, this is J.D. Hudson. And so not every cop is going to be the same. That's not right. every hustler is going to be the same. And, you know, wherever we go anywhere, there's going to be a name to the face of the story that we're telling. And, and that's vital. There's a really good book called The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabella Wilkerson. And one of the stories she tells is about this black family in Limestone, Alabama, which is North Alabama, and how the youngest child was a feeble child. And he would never be suited to do farm work because he was just a small frame, feeble child. And so they tell the story on how this family moves north. I think they moved to Ohio because they were Southern and there was not a lot of education. When the youngest child went to school, his name was James Owens, but the teachers named him Jesse because they called him JC. They named him Jesse. And so this becomes the same Jesse Owens who his feeble body in rural Alabama sharecropping may have not meant anything, but in another environment, he becomes the fastest man in the world and debunks the idea of white supremacy by beating the Nazis. So what I'm saying is that given different situations and opportunities, Chicken Man could have been mayor of Columbus, Ohio. Or the head of a multi-million dollar corporation. Exactly. Or vice versa. The heads of these corporations could end up impoverished in prison or whatever it is. So you use the word well. There's a lot of complexity to all of these stories. But ultimately, this is just a great heist. It's a great heist and it's a great story to tell. Thank you for listening to Fight Night. We hope you join us for our next podcast about a professor who conducted over 50 interviews with the most infamous mass murderer in South Carolina history. It's called Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. Fight Night is a joint production from iHeartRadio, Will Packer Media, and Doghouse Pictures in association with Psychopia Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Will Packer, James Lopez, Kenny Burns, Dan Bush, Lars Jacobson, and Noel Brown. Supervising producer is Taylor Shacoin. Story editors are Noel Brown and Dan Bush. Written by Jeff Keating and Jim Roberts. Edited by Matt Owen. Mixing and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players. Additional music by Ben Lovett. Audio archives courtesy of WSB News, Film, and Videotape Collection, Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. Special thanks to Dr. Maurice Hobson and David Davis. Fight Night is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. 
Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.